Hi, I'm Adrian Potter. Welcome to the Designer Maker Revolution. For most of my life, I've been curious about why people do the things they do, especially people that create for a living. In these episodes, I'm going to talk to people that design and make the most amazing things. I'm going to ask them how and why they do the things they do. Please join me on this adventure into a creative life. Hi, Adrian Potter here again. Welcome to the Designer Maker Revolution podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. It's such a pleasure to have listeners on board. Really appreciate it. Can't do it without you, as you all know already. Today, really awesome artist, Patrick Hall, Tasmanian guy. He makes the most amazing works of art. Lots of them are furniture, or at least lots of them are cabinets, but he also does like two-dimensional things and it really makes no difference. I, I think his artworks are just so incredibly inspiring. And look, what I want you all to do is uh, pause this show and go and have a look at Patrick Hall's work. Should be heaps of it out there on your favourite browser platform. Check it out first. Have a listen. He's an awesome chap. Great to have him on. Thanks for listening. Take it away, Patrick. Hi, Dan. Hey, Patrick. How are you? Yeah, good, good. Are you um, all set up in your soundproof booth? Yeah, it's not very soundproof. Yeah. <laughs> not <laughs> even a booth. little workshop that's all got that soundproofing. Yeah, remember that? Uh, that's right. I did too. Yeah. <laughs> but um, unfortunately, that workshop, that studio is no more for me. It's oh, still, is it? No, I, I lost it. I, oh. It disappeared, flew off no. into the sunset. <laughs> oh, oh, damn it. <laughs> yeah, I reckon, because that was a great place. It was soundproof. I loved it. Yeah. Oh. So you're in a different place now, Adrian. Totally different. Yeah, right. yeah totally different. Have you got a... A studio at home, or do you rent a place? Um, I rent a place. It's it's really just a tin shed kind of. One of the questions was, is there any regrets? <laughs> I wish I'd built my own workshop somewhere, but yeah, yeah. no, I've been, been renting the same one for oh, 15 years now, I think, something like that. So, you can uh, still do that. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I think I will do it, actually. Yeah, we've got... Your one that I saw, the one you no longer have, was an inspiration because it was in this suburban setting, so it can be done, you know. Oh, it totally it, can. Yeah. Mm. So, uh, yeah, Di's just always um, worries and I'll upset the neighbours, but I think I'd be all right. Do you know what? <laughs> yeah, I think you'll be fine. I think what yeah. upsets the neighbours is smell. Yes, that's true. That's true. You the, noise, the noise you can kind of limit. Are you in Hobart Town or are you... No, we're, we're, we're about 10 minutes south, so we're at Kingston yep. Beach. Kingston so Beach, it's, um, beautiful. Yeah, mm. yeah. It's a nice spot. And it's actually a pretty big block. You know, it's like three quarters of an acre kind of thing, so That's I'm sure enough. we'd get away with it. Yeah. Do it, man. Yeah, I know. Do you know I what? Know. You know what you can do? Spare room in the house. Yeah. Just, do that. Yeah. Di won't mind. She'd like it, yeah. actually. <laughs> Yeah. Well, Di's got, got her, her workshop in the house. So, well, there yeah, you I go. Think I'll just, 
just next go door. Under. You, you yeah, can have the, that's right. share the same room because you get on yeah. so well. Like you, she'd enjoy it. Like she, yeah. she'd she'd appreciate the dust. Yeah, the she would. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Although there is something to be said for leaving the house, actually. But uh, yeah. but even even leaving the house to a different building on the property that's that's leaving the house. So. I really liked it. Horses for courses, for my personality, the way I like to work, it suited yep. me down to the ground. And so what do you do now then? What's, what's yeah, your situation? Yeah, I make I make furniture for somebody else. I'm yeah, a, right. I'm a salary dude. Oh, okay. Yeah, look, I, I couldn't <laughs> – yeah, I mean, personal story here. Yep. Oh, and you'd be a dream employee. employee. Oh, mate, I can be such an arsehole. You know, one of the things <laughs> I've learned about working for somebody is how much of an arsehole I can be. <laughs> uh, I never thought of myself like that. But I know it's true now, and yeah. it's good to learn. Yeah, yeah. Look, we're going, Patrick. I'm... We're just recording, so we can you can just talk or start. Oh, or, okay. Right. Or I can start with the questions. <laughs> I could even welcome you to the Design yeah. Make a Revolution podcast. Oh, well, thanks for having me, Adrian. Bloody That's good awesome. On you. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> and um, I can even ask you that if you're at a party and someone asks you what you do, what do you answer? Yes, I've been thinking about this one. I. It's taken me an awfully long time to come around to it, but I say artists now. Yeah. Artists now, yeah. I mean, I I always used to be shy away from the term, like only dickheads say that. But you know, really, I kind of the more I think about it, that's the truthful answer. I think so. Yeah. So that's the one I do. How did? Well, there's two questions. How did you come around to the thinking that yeah, I am an artist? And yep. what did you call yourself before? Well, I, I've gone through various things. I, I mean, I used to sort of say, oh, I just make stuff, and that's kind of doesn't say anything really. <laughs> and then yeah. and then during the, the 80s and 90s, I did use I, I'm a designer maker and was very mm. proud of that term. Mm. Um, but, I, but I think really if my work kind of does fall on the art side more than the design side, so artist maker might be more more appropriate mm. but that's what gets unwieldy so i just sort of say artist really now yeah what is art as opposed to design oh uh, well that's a perennial question isn't it i would say it's sort of about perhaps interior concerns but it's such a hard definitional thing I think my work has moved away a little from the functional even though it's still can be functional, not always, but can be. So as soon as I sort of made that sort of step, then I then I think it probably is a little bit more on the art side. But I, I've always struggled with the those kind of definitions. And, mm-hmm. and ultimately, I mean, I think it's important to think about what you do and how you label it. But, you know, there are there are practices that exist on the margins, and I think I've just happened to be one of those. Yeah. It's an interesting area that you work within and it's one I really want to explore actually, you know, why furniture as a medium, a vehicle? 
Well, I think that that sort of probably stems back to that reluctance to call myself an artist for a long time. I, I, I sort of wanted to feel sort of grounded in a set of practical skills and, and I'm, I'm kind of not a practical person at all, really. <laughs> I'm, um, you know, I, I, so I sort of wanted a little set of skills that I could have that, so I, I signed up to a furniture making furniture design course. Yeah, so um, can yeah. I can I just hold that thought? Yep. Why did you want a set of skills? Like, what's the rationale behind that? Well, I think it's I think it's the tool culture. I mean, I think you know, it, it, I, I like tools and I like you know the the sort of the semi macho feeling of holding a tool and making mm-hmm. a noise with one. You know, and actually sort of. Um, be able to shape the world around you with with a piece of equipment, but I mean you yeah, okay. you can do that with a paintbrush, I guess. But I guess it was cloaked in a sort of eighties masculinity a bit. <laughs> but you're still yeah. doing it though, aren't you? Like, it, oh think... yeah, 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 still doing it, definitely. Yeah. Look, actually, there's a couple of quotes that I pulled out. Yeah. I'm gonna. You've been doing research. I like the little forms you think. Yeah, yeah, thanks so much. Look, it means a lot to me to get it right. Yeah, like you talk about, here's a quote, I'm trying to make sense of a world that constantly moves ahead of you and you can never stand still in it. And you've just said you enjoy shaping the world around you. It's sort of like, can you talk about that? Is it? Yeah, well... My work kind of has for a long time, not exclusively, but it has been centred around the notion of the cabinet. And mm. um, and the, the cabinet to me is this interesting concept. It's sort of, you know, obviously this structure that we have that has drawers and you can put things in it. But it's also another meaning of the word that, that um, sort of means a private room. So, you know, like mm. parliamentary cabinets come from that side of the definition. So it's sort of combining those two things. It's sort of like this private place that I can sort of put my thoughts. So that, to me, that's what my cabinets are about. They're, they're not necessarily about the storage of other people's things, although they can be once they're out of my hands, but really they're, they're more for storing my thoughts and in a way that's the thing that can sort of hold back time and sort of that thoughts are are such fleeting fragile things Mm. you know unless you get them down somehow and have some place to put them they're gone so I suppose that's the notion of sort of slowing down time or sort of shaping your world is just by being conscious of your thoughts and having somewhere to put them so that's kind of how I see a lot of my work, really. Yeah. Where do your thoughts come from, do you think? Um, well, they they come from lots of... They, they come from the ephemera of your life, really. I mean, you, they come from your family, your feelings about your family. They come from, you know, raging at the TV screen or <laughs> jumping at the radio, you know. The, the, do you do um, that? Oh yeah, oh, I'm I'm a shocker for it. Oh you know? really? Yeah, certain people come on the screen and they show. So <laughs> I'll yell at them or they'll they'll say stupid things and I'll or call them idiots. They don't know who I am. It's actually quite because I'm um, I'm quite mild mannered usually, but I, yeah. I like to vent at the screen. <laughs> Name names, Patrick. I want to know what rocks your boat. Oh well, well, I mean. I think the whole world has an aversion to Donald Trump. And, 
Yeah, and, and I mean, I suppose I'm on the left side of politics, so anybody yeah. on the other side, I I kind of um, have short patience for usually. <laughs> do you do you consider yourself an environmentalist or a green type of person? Yeah. Not politically, but just yeah, yeah. No, I'll, I'll definitely. I mean, uh, I think that's one of the global anxieties at the moment is what what we're doing to the planet, you know, we sort of live in an age now that the Anthropocene, you know, we've, uh, humans have sort of affected the world so much. We have an epoch named after us. It's, it's semi-worrying, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. So, um, well, more than semi-worrying, it's very worrying. But, uh, yeah, and I suppose, you know, living a simple life is kind of a, a, an antidote to that. So, you know, this kind of working life, I suppose, helps with that. I don't know, really. But then again, you use, I'm using resources. And so, yeah, it's a very hard balance to maintain, isn't it? It is. Yeah, like uh, a furniture maker, not that you do this, but a furniture maker could easily use a piece of hewn pine. You know, obviously that tree would have been growing for 10,000 years or something by the time it gets used. And yep. where, where's the ethics in that? Mm, yeah, uh, well, you know, uh, one of one of my teachers, Kevin Perkins, makes mm-hmm. like staggeringly beautiful pieces of furniture from hue and pine, and mm. in a way, I think he does honour to that material. You know, it, they're they're one-off things. They're invested with hundreds of hours of of Kevin's labour. You know, he, he it's an unusual thing to sort of weep before a piece of wood, <laughs> and yet he can make you do that. So, in a way, I think that's a nice thing to happen to hue and pine, rather than go to a factory and and become something that's mass-produced, I guess. A piece of souvenir from Tasmania. Exactly, yes, with hot poker work on it. Oh, mate. (laughs) You've done that, haven't you? Made um, souvenirs for Tasmania. No, I'm only Uh, joking. You haven't, (laughs) have you? (laughs) Back in the day, student days. I'm just trying to search my databank. I think I might have done the odd trophy here and there, but... <laughs> uh, never hot pokers. Never hot pokers. No. Yeah. Well, you should. Buddy, <laughs> about time. Come on, get out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, what Kevin does, I think, that's really quite remarkable is he imbues the work with meaning, as you do. And the meanings give the, the materials and the piece that he's making life again. Yeah, exactly. It transcends yeah. any any ethical dilemma that you might have. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And and Kevin doesn't go and chop human pine down. He's spent a lifetime rescuing human pine. You know, it's mm. that's part of the process of making the furniture. Is you know he's he's sort of taken he's collected these pieces over you know forty fifty years. Mm. How did you go as a child? You were born in Germany, if I got that right? Yes, yeah. Um, my, uh, I've got English parents, so my dad was an was an army type. <clears throat> um, so we we travelled all over, and uh, and just happened to be in Germany where <laughs> when when Linda and I popped out. I'm a I'm a twin, 
Are so, you really? Is that yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we're the we're the youngest of five. So, oh my goodness! Yeah. And are you all creative types, or? Um, yeah, I say we are. Um, like Blender and I are sort of the youngest, as I said. And there's quite a, a sort of a big gap between the rest, you know. That so mm-hmm. we were sort of late children. So actually, that's the reason we we came to live in Tassie. We my mum and dad split up, and then. My older sister, who'd been to art school, got a job at the Tasmanian School of Art oh, and really? with her husband, John Smith, and John set up the <laughs> designing wood, wood um, oh course yes. out here. So, yeah, but we sort of, you know, poor things. They were probably wanting to set up this independent life, but <laughs> mum dragged the rest of the kids out and followed them to Tassie. So, yeah. yeah. Kind of, so, yeah, so back to your question about... Um, Creativity. I mean, so Penn and John have always been this big role model. But my mm. my other sister, uh, my twin sister, is an art teacher, and I've got another sister who's a who's a painter, and her partner George Callahan's a painter. So yeah, so it's fairly deeply ingrained. I kind of resisted it for a while, but. <laughs> but couldn't. Yeah, you couldn't escape it. No, that's right. What was in the water when your parents were bringing up their kids that, you know, you've got so much creativity in the family? Um, I, I don't really know. I mean, I mean, I don't think that they were particularly creative, really. I think it all really stems from my older sister's sort of setting a template that we all thought was cool and we yeah, sort of right. followed it. Yeah. And I suppose you, you followed her to Tasmania and that was kind of her life, especially with John Smith. I mean, they're very immersed, you know. Like. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, they, they, I mean, really, Penn and John are sort of surrogate parents to Belinda and I, you know, there's sort okay. of a 15-year age difference. And, and of course, mum, being single mum, had to work. So, you know, we were kind of latchkey kids so we'd just go and hang out with Penn and John a lot of the time and just be involved with what they were doing so and you know we'd go and sleep in their workshop and yeah <laughs> and they were making things and I can see how you grow, you've almost grown up with tools haven't you yeah well that's right they made their own house geodesic yeah. dome and all of geodesic that sort of dome, 70s yeah. things so uh, yeah. tell us about the geodesic dome because there's a story it's not a whole set of stories behind that but. yeah well <laughs> well john was sort of a buckminster fuller sort of yeah. acolyte and yeah. um and just just loved him and and sort of wanted to build a geodesic dome forever sort of thing so and you know, 70s and council rules and all <laughs> and those sort of things. I don't think they quite knew what to make of this this sort of um, young chap with blonde hair wanting to build a dome. But, um, yeah, he, he finally got it through the council and, uh, mm. yeah, and it, was, it was a great thing. This big sort of golf ball just landed on the top of Mount Nelson. It, uh, is Penny still there? No, she's not. No, John, you, know, you probably know John, died yep. probably seven or eight years ago now. And, mm. um, yeah, no, so Penn's in a smaller place now, loving yep. life, yep. was travelling a lot until recent times. Yeah. What was it like to live in that dome? Oh, I think they, they really loved it. I mean, it's I mean it's a product of its time. There's no privacy in the dome. It's kind of like the whispering wall in, <laughs> in St. Peter heard. or something. Yeah, so, That's exactly yeah, so, what I heard, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, but it was a great thing. So if somebody farts, that's it. Everyone knows. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> you just expect the smell to seep around the wall. Yeah, you don't even have to smell it anymore. It's just like <laughs> somebody has. That's it. Did you did you have a lot of fun when you were a kid? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I look back on my childhood as a lovely time. Um, not particularly – well – I was going to say not particularly adventurous, but I suppose by today's standards it was. I think because mum, mum was sort of at work, you know, she was a, a waitress and had to work at night. So, you know, we've kind of left our own devices. And, you know, in those days you had two television stations and one of them we couldn't get. So we <laughs> had to do something. So, yeah, so we had a, an old sort of rowboat and we, we used to live now various places, but one of the spots I remember fondly is, is kind of where where Mona is now. We used to live across the river from there uh-huh. in this old farmhouse. It didn't have hot water or anything, but it did have a rowboat, so we'd just spend our days on the Derwent, really. So oh, it was great. Wow. Yeah, wow. Did you miss your father? Like, did you have any contact with him? Well, we were about eight when we came to Australia, so I've only got very sketchy memories of him. And... None of them are bad. It's just uh, I just didn't really know him really, and I suppose mm. I mean I sort of got vague memories. He used to have vague memories of like Malaya. He was he was like a jungle warfare guy in Malaya, and mm. there was the communist insurgency there. Mm. And I've got sort of vague little pictures, but of the man himself, I don't really really have many memories of him, and. I did have that sort of dilemma, you know, when you're an older, well, when you're grown up, whether you sort of make contact with that parent who you don't know. And I remember making a conscious decision not to, because my brother lived in England and, you know, I'll go over and visit him. And he's always saying, well, should we go and see dad? And I just sort of thought. Nah, <laughs> you know that that's a different person, you know. So I didn't make contact, yeah, right. and sometimes I wonder if I should have, but I but I didn't. Um, no. he's, he's not around now. Yeah, look, I think you would have if you needed to. Exactly, and I don't feel, you know, there wasn't any sort of animosity towards him. You know, I had mm. I had plenty of people that looked after me and loved me, so it wasn't like, you know, I felt a, a deficit in that department, so no, it was good. Yeah. What did you plan to be when you were a kid? Ah, I, I remember my one of my childhood ambitions was to be a tugboat captain. I don't, <laughs> I don't know where that went. I was wondering, I used to dream of having a tugboat and taking it around the world. I don't know what I'd do with a tugboat around the world, but I didn't, I didn't really have it. You know, it was a different time, I think. You don't, you didn't really have that thing that I'm going to be this so much, I don't think. I think, yeah. you know, like now, I now I really feel for young people growing up now because, you know, like every stage of their education seems to be this kind of monitored thing where progress is judged and, you know, you have to get a certain mark to do a certain thing. You know, we just lived in a... In the days where you went to school, came home, mucked around. <laughs> that was it. Yeah. Do you miss those days or do you miss that feeling of those days? I, I miss, I, yeah, I do miss the sort of the um, the lack of responsibility. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, I think that is the number one joy of being a child is that you 
you're not responsible for things. You can just cruise along, and that's that's the great thing about being a child, I think. Yeah. Have you imbued that in your child? You've got a son, yes, Austin? I've got a son, yeah, Austin, yeah. Oh, he's a big cruiser, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But now I'm on the other side of the equation. You go, is that a good thing? <laughs> so you're you're looking at his school reports and saying, huh, yeah, not yeah, so yeah. good with that yeah. subject, young man. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Oh, well... No, he's a, he's a he's a lovely chap. So that's that's all I can ask for. <laughs> yeah. Application will come later. <laughs> Yeah, that's it. I reckon. I think there's, like, it's a journey, isn't it? And I think parents, there's a lot of anxiety as a parent, actually, to to make sure that your kids are happy and safe and doing the best they can and being the best people they can be. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely there is. Yeah. 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 There's not actually a whole lot we can do, though, as parents, I don't think. Well, there is, but it's kind of very nuanced. Yeah. Well, I think, you love them unconditionally. That's really all you can do. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, yeah, help them when they need help and just be there, I guess. But, uh, yeah. But, you, but you're right. It's very, um, it does, yeah, I do get anxious about it all sometimes. <laughs> yeah. What's it like being in Tasmania, given that Tasmania is a remote part of Australia and Australia's already remote? from the world, yeah. the cultural world. Yeah. Well, when I first started, uh, you know, in the sort of mid-'80s, I think that was a really – it was a big thing to be from Tasmania. It was, you know, you were sort of seen as the end of the world, I think, in those days. But things have changed drastically. I mean, mm. we live in such a connected world now, you know, you can post a picture and oh, I don't know who looks at it, but you can post a picture and, you know, somebody from somewhere can look at it. Um, but, but but I do think it's, you know, when, whenever I've travelled, people ask where I come from. Yeah. I very rarely say Australia. It's not that I'm not proud of being Australian. It's, it's I come from Tasmania, you no. know, whereas I don't know if it's different for a mainlander. I mean, do you say you come from South Australia? Absolutely or not. No, I would definitely no. say Australia. Yeah, yeah. So I think there is a, an island identity, I think, to Tassie, which yeah. is strong and is lingering. And I think that's probably why suddenly, you know, like COVID aside, I think, you know, Tasmania has had a, uh, this kind of sudden surge of interest, you know, because perhaps we are seen as remote and that's a good thing now, <laughs> whereas before it was seen as a disadvantage. So, yeah, you're yeah. safe and pristine yeah. and food is untainted and the yeah. water's clean. Yeah. And, and those, those are the qualities now that... I think people realise are precious, whereas we took them for granted for so many years. Yeah, for sure. What about travelling? Do you think that's important? Let's say you were giving advice to a young maker, artist yep. type person. Would you encourage them to travel overseas and see all the cultural icons that they could see? Yes, I would. Yeah, I think travel's a great thing. I mean, I I find the my urge for travel was diminished. I mean, I, I've become more of a homebody now, I think, than I used to be. Mm. But 
I think it was an important thing to do when I did it. And, you know, I'm I'm not particularly well-travelled, but, you know, I've travelled a bit. I, I do think... I mean, for me, the the result of travelling was to realise I love the place I'm in, and that's a massive reason to travel, you know. And if you have the reverse effect and you realise you want to be somewhere else, then that's just as good, you know. I think to make that informed decision, you do have to see other places, I think. Yeah, you're looking at it sort of a holistic point of view as opposed to a business practicality point of view, which I think is interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I've I've never been particularly practical in the business side, but but I mean, I think for your own for your own work, I think it is really important just to just to see other things and to yeah, and at least know what's out there. Do you yeah. consider yourself as a person that runs a small business? Yeah, I do. I, well, I, at this point, I've got to mention my wife, Di Allison. I mean, yeah. She and I are, are, are sort of a, a one business, and that's Hawless and Studios. We we yep. both do our our own thing within that, but and I'll help her on projects, and she'll help me. And and she's been very good with <laughs> drumming in, drumming into me that we are a business, and we do need to make a certain amount of money to keep calling ourselves a business. Um, okay. So so that that I mean I think it's it's. It's probably great for someone to have that other voice <laughs> in the relationship to say those things. Yeah. I mean, she's always wanting to have meetings about what's next. And, <laughs> and, I, and I go, oh, God, really? Yeah, but right. It's a good thing to do. Yeah. 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 I, I've never planned a career as such. I mean, I sort of plan work and I plan exhibitions, but... I don't think I've ever really sort of thought a trajectory that would take me sort of years into the future. It's more, it's it's always for me been the thing I'm working on and the next idea really, that's as far as I go. But I'm not saying that's a good thing, I'm just saying that's yeah. the way I do it. Yeah. I'm actually wondering if it might be a good thing. You know, the notion of living in the now. Yeah. yeah. I'm just wondering if, you know, maybe if we did, let all these plans and ambitions go and just focus on something that's really good right now. Maybe it'll yeah. work out better. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I, well, I agree with, whether I will or not. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but it, it's, um, I mean, that's, I think that's part of the reason that we make stuff is to be part of the now, you know. It, uh-huh. to, to, to be in that little space that is just about you and the thing you're doing, really. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I know that for me, that's a big thing. It's incredibly fulfilling to make something and, and have the time just pass and, you know, already it's five o'clock and you go, oh, my God, that was so much yeah. fun. And I think it's a really important thing for yeah. huma- humans. Like, it's yeah. a human trait, well, I, I think you're absolutely right, and, and you you can tell when a project is going well when the when the days just slip by and you, you go, oh my god, I've, I've been on this week and I'm you know, and it feels like two hours, you know, mm. it's it's, and I love that feeling where you where you sort of 
you get up in the morning and you know that you've got this sort of engagement that's going to happen all through the day and you feel good about it. I mean, I, I, mean, I, I partly, I think, sort of have a life that I, I, you know, I can go to the workshop and I can listen to interesting things on the radio or a, or a, you know, a, an audio book or listen to music and it, it's, it's a real privilege, actually, just to be able to have that time just to be with yourself. I yeah. think being with yourself is a great thing if, if you're up for it. <laughs> it's not always easy, but if you're up for it, it, it can be really rewarding, I think. Yeah, I agree. How have you managed to keep going with your passion and drive after all these years? Well, I think I think it does go back to that just taking it day by day, really, and project by project. I mean, you do – I mean, I must admit, I, you know, you have – peaks and troughs where, yeah. you know, there's, there's times when, you know, oh, there's, there's kind of years when you feel like, oh, it's just gushing out of me and it's, you know, and I'm a genius. <laughs> and there's other times you think, oh, God, what, you know, I, I just can't face this anymore. So it does, it can be up and down. And, and I think, well, you know, you, one of your questions was what would you recommend for for young young people starting out, I think yeah. it's just persistence. You've just got to just slowly build up your confidence that you can do it. And you know, and when you finish a piece, that's not the end of it. You know, I, I tend to have this sort of big dip. I finish a piece and think that's it. I can't do it anymore. Yeah. And then, but the next one will happen, and and you'll either feel good or bad about it. But then you can go to the next one. You know, there's always the next one. So do you have a couple of pieces on the go at any one time? Yeah, usually I do. And it's nice to be able to leave leave something when you when you don't feel like it's going great. You know, mm. so yeah. And it, sometimes it's good just to just to go to the workshop and sit in a chair for a few hours. You don't have to be <sighs> God, always doing. You know, that is so interesting. Yeah, because, well, I mean, you do feel this, there is this sort of this Protestant work ethic that, you know, every hour must be productive, and productivity comes in lots of different ways. Sometimes doing nothing can be productive. You know, you just just have a cup of tea, holding a cup of tea, looking at what you've done, not even necessarily thinking deeply about it, just looking at it is really a good thing to do, I think. So, you know. Give you a bit of space from it. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And it's amazing, you know, like you can hate an object one day, come back into the workshop the next day and think, oh, what am I worried about? <laughs> it's, it's, it's great, it's good. Or, yeah. yeah. Does that happen a lot when you are making something and you just, really aren't enjoying it or, you, you know, the word hate's a pretty strong one, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, your personal mood is always going to infect your, in, infect what you do. I mean, if you've got a salary job that, you know, you're going to feel good on some days and bad on others. So I, I think being a, being a maker of things and, uh, well, let's, let's call myself an artist is, is exactly the same. You have days where you feel confident and days where you don't. But mm. just you, you just have to realise that that's okay. That's that's being a human being. You know, it doesn't mean you're a bad artist or you're a genius. It's just 
how it is. Yeah. yeah. Have you got tools that you use or skills that you use to get out of those funks? Like, if, is there something that... I, it's actually really... I always find it's really nice to have a stage on a project that is sort of repetitious, that's kind of just process-based and you just mm-hmm. sort of do it. And then and you're just sort of working away and you're, you're doing it and you feel like you're achieving and it's you don't have to sort of expend too much mental energy. And then when you have a few of those days, you sort of feel okay about whatever you're making because it's moved on. Mm-hmm. And then you can feel ready for those those kind of risks that you have to take and that those those stages where you you've got to be braver and just leap in and make a decision. <laughs> so yeah, it's nice to sort of break up a project into the sort of the the active stages and the contemplation sort of phases. Mm. So. What's the points where you need to be brave? Like what Well I think starting you have to be brave. <laughs> I mean that, that I mean the the Tyranny of the empty shed is quite daunting, <laughs> you know. Like yeah. you've had an exhibition and things are gone, and you've got to start all over again. Yeah. I just have this idea of uh, of a designer maker. They're making something, and they've invested a fair amount of their soul into it. Yeah. And they've got to a point where they can't see it anymore, and there's something that's not quite working in some way or maybe there's going to be a critique or they're going to put it in an exhibition. They just have no like There's no way that they can see it. I'm just wondering yeah. how do you go about seeing something that you're making? Mm, well, uh, I mean, having a second set of eyes is good. I mean, and having somebody whose opinion you really trust is, is great. So, I'll drag Di up to the workshop and yeah. she'll tell me what she thinks and that, that can be really helpful. So, you know, in a, in a way it's a very solitary practice but to have that interaction with somebody who knows the history of your work and knows, you know, what you're trying to get at is really, is, mm. is, a, is a gift really. I mean, that's an amazing thing. But aside from that, the confidence to put it aside is good to let it sit for a while. You don't have to, you don't have to always be working on it. You can just, you know, as we said before, have a cup of tea, mm. sit on it for days if you have to. You know, it doesn't. And there's no right and wrong. You know, there's the world's not going to end if you make a bad decision on a piece. It's just, you know, you might have to redo a bit of it. That's all. <laughs> you know, I think that's uh, that's the thing. Things can be fixed. Yeah. If you're looking all the time, you can probably see the points where it needs to be fixed. Yeah. I'm yeah. I'm trying to channel a feeling that I've had. I don't know if you've ever had it, but I know a lot of people do as well, where you're designing something, you're working on a work, you've got an idea. It's a good idea, but you just can't articulate it in a three-dimensional way. There's something about it that's just not working. You can't see why it's not working. It can be demoralising. Yeah, oh, absolutely it can. And we we sort of build it up to these sort of ridiculous proportions as well. I think you just have to step back and go, you know. Yeah. Did, did, I mean, it, it, 
this this object is important to me and I've invested a lot of time in it, but it doesn't matter that much. <laughs> Sometimes yeah. you, you have to just sort of take a step back and go, that, that's okay. It, you know, if this object never sees the light of day, the world is not poorer for it, really. Uh, it may <laughs> well be richer, heaven forbid. Yes, <laughs> yes exactly. Uh, I think it... This idea that you kind of don't have a plan, you, you're, you're working hard, but it's not in a planned way or an ambitious way, mm. it's kind of that openness can re- – you can reap rewards for that openness. Absolutely, yeah, I think so too. And I think it's always important, you know, football coaches always say it's about the process, not the result, you know, and mm-hmm. it's, it's such a cliche, but I think it's true. I mean, it you do it for its own sake. You don't do it for, well, you know, it's nice to to make a living out of it. And, of course, that's vital in some, some stages of your career, but it, just do it because you like to do it is the main thing, I think. Mm. And if you don't like to do it, it's okay not to do it. <laughs> it's okay too, yeah. I think if you you have a desire to be creative, a musician, an artist or whatever, a designer maker, yeah. you probably can't do anything else. I'm not saying yeah, that you, you don't have the skills to do anything else, but there's a drive there that is overwhelming. And if you can do something else, like if you feel like you could do something else, you probably will end up doing that because it's such a marginal existence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're right. I mean, I mean, there there have been stages in my career where I, I just think, oh God, it'd just be so nice just to <laughs> go go to a job, get a you know, do what is expected of me, and get a pay packet, and, and wouldn't that be nice? But I, I, I can't do it. It's, it's no. just you know, I've I've got a you know, I've got to keep doing what I'm doing now. I've committed this long. <laughs> yeah, I reckon and, you'd, you'd and last love about it. three seconds. Patrick. Yeah, I think I would. I think I would. Mm. Yeah. Nah, stick at what you're doing. I think the world's a richer place because of it. Yeah, uh, that's look. It's that's fine. It's absolutely true. How important is the functional aspect of decorative objects for you? Um, I think. It's become less. I mean, it's become less important to me. But I've always, I've always thought that the functional aspect is a way of, um, of perhaps getting people to engage with an object, mm. and then hopefully other things might seep in. You know, so I mean, there there is the irresistible urge to open a drawer, and as soon mm. as you've touched that drawer and you've opened it. You you are sort of physically interacting with an object that um, that gives it more of a presence than if it was only your eyes that were caressing it. So um, so I think that that functional aspect can be really useful, although the functional aspect in itself isn't really what I'm about. I don't think. No. If you let's drop into a very professional Patrick, and you're an ambitious artist. Would yeah. you consider that you would be have a larger presence in the art world if your objects or works of art were completely non-functional? That's a very interesting question. Um, 
possibly, possibly. I, I mean, I, I've been fairly lucky. I mean, um, sort of having some of my work at Mona has been has sort of put it in this rarefied art world, which mm. is which has been really useful for it. It's been good for the for the work and it's You've got a whole room there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's a whole room of functional objects, so it's interesting. It's mm. um well uh, functional objects there I mean the, the, there's kind of there's sort of speaking drawers and that kind of thing. Yeah, but they're not really functional but but um but they, they have the guys function. So I mean I I've been lucky. I've 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 I'm somebody who makes functional objects and has been put in this this sort of uh, temple of non 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 functionality. So in a way, I think that makes me stand out. I think. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't know. I mean, it is always. I think a lot of craft people do find that division between sort of fine art and decorative art as as this kind of barrier that they bump into and and get resentful about. Really? And I can understand. Well, I think think some do. I'm not saying all do. And and, and I certainly don't. But I can see if I was, you know, if I was a a craftsperson and, and, you know, and you go to the state collections, quite often the craft collection seems to be in sort of the you know, the distant corner of the <laughs> of yeah, the museum. If it exists at all. Mm. If it exists at all. And and I could and I could understand the resentment in that. But you know, really I think good and interesting work will just sort of has its own presence and we shouldn't sort of worry about those things. No. What about the decorative aspect of functional objects? Well it's it's a, it's an interesting debate. It's um I think one of one of the questions that you you sent me was uh, about good and bad design. I think yeah, um, or good and bad art too. Yeah, good, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think uh, I mean we do live in a world that I think is more um, design literate than it ever has been. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I think you know magazines are full of this sort of good taste and and modernism and and I'm I'm a huge modernist fan. I love modernist furniture. Mm-hmm. But it it has sort of become sort of the the fallback position of all magazines and <laughs> and uh and all good taste, you know, has become very pared back and minimal. And I think decoration with no reason I can see why why people criticize that. But decorate decoration for a reason for Telling a story or for mm. telling a history is important and vital and rich. So, um, so yeah, I, I can see both sides of the, the coin on that one. Yeah. Do you have an artistic philosophy or definitions of good or bad art or design? I don't. I don't think so. I, I mean, there, there's. I'm, I'm a very broad church on this. I mean, I there's work that I respond to immediately and there's work that I might have to work a little bit harder to really get but I'm willing to if somebody's put an object out there and as and I can tell that that there is been legitimate passion and authenticity put into that object I'm prepared to 
stay with it until I get something. <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah. so you know, I I don't like judging objects too harshly. I mean, I I like to yeah, I like to give objects the ben- benefit of the doubt. I think you know, well, especially objects that are made one off by somebody. I want to. You know, I want to look at that object and see that person and try and understand that person. You know, sometimes that'll be something that I might get straight away. Sometimes I might never get it, but I I always want to put in an effort to see if I can get it rather than instantly dismiss. You're prepared to actually invest time into the creation, the creative work of somebody else, hey? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because I'm involved in the field, I know how hard it is. So, yeah. you know, there is nothing more demoralizing from your own point of view as somebody simply ignoring your work or dismissing it, you know, with a, with a, without sort of trying to sort of unwrap it or, or, or see if it's got more layers than immediately apparent. So, yeah. So I try and, do the same courtesy to other people's work as well, if I can. Mm. Have you ever been a judge for a competition? Let me think. Well, I was on the Australia Council for three years, so that's kind of... Yeah, that'll be a judge (laughs) for a competition. (laughs) And I I found that immensely stressful because yeah yeah just because i i you know there's all these people with their their hopes pinned on on their applications and and um it's an awful thing when there just simply isn't enough funds to give out but uh yeah you've got to make a decision somewhere Yeah. yeah but competitions no, I don't think I have. I'm trying no. to get an idea how you go about judging your own work, actually. Like, if I can – do you see what I'm trying to tease out here? I'm trying to get – and I want to I want to ask you some questions coming up about how you go about making and designing your work. Like, where do the ideas come from? Mm-hmm. Do you see where I'm coming from? Yeah, yeah. I think that that is one of the really hard things about – making stuff is judging your own work, I think, um, because you are invested in it. I mean, I think the natural life cycle of, of a piece of work that, that I make is, you know, you start with this flash of enthusiasm and you think, what a great idea. Mm. And then you're, you're working away and you become jaded by the the whole process of giving birth. <laughs> and then, and then, um, and you know, and you think, oh, what am I doing? And then, uh, and then in the end, you sort of come to this middle ground. You know, I tried my best, <laughs> and that's—I yeah. uh, think that's that's all that can be asked for, really. I don't know if that's answered your question at all, there, Adrian. Look, but... the the question is really multifaceted, and it's a, I think, a difficult question to answer when this is something you just do. I'm trying to tease out something that you have in yourself as an innate thing Mm. and it doesn't have words attached to it. Yeah. I'm hoping that with the lack of words that we've got at our disposal to sort of tease out how somebody can go about doing a design or a work of art, like where do the ideas come from? How do you develop them? How much time it takes? And if like, 
You know, it's it's a question that I find absolutely fascinating. Yeah. I, I, I find it fascinating, but I find it almost impossible to answer because even my own work, those starting positions um, are always different. You know, like an idea may be inspired by a material or it may be by uh, a set of words or it, you know, might just be by, I don't know, something I've heard on the radio. It's it's um, mm. it, it, it just sort of, I think just being open and adaptable is really the font of good ideas. You know, <laughs> it's, um, I, I don't think you can say, I'm going to go into the workshop and have a good idea today. No, no. It's actually, you you actually just, all the time you have to have, you know, the, the antenna up and yeah. be receiving stimulus. And, you know, and sometimes that's dreadfully exhausting. And that's, that's, that's where so the, uh, that's where the, the quiet of a workshop can sort of help filter those messages. But you've, you've got to allow the messages to be in your head first, I think. So, you know, it, you know, you read a lot, listen to a lot of podcasts. I've never listened to a podcast. I need to do that. But yeah, you need <laughs> um, to listen to mine. Yeah, I will. I will. This <laughs> one that hasn't <laughs> been produced yet. You will. This will be your first. It'll be the one. Yeah, of you. It'll probably open a huge gate for me. So yeah. Oh, but I, I mean, I love yeah. audio books, and, and I get yeah. a lot of lot of ideas from audio books. So it's just, yeah, you know. Yeah. yeah, I think that it takes a lot of practice to generate ideas and to um, filter those ideas too through your own sensibilities. Yeah, and practice has to be hard work. Yes. You can't yeah. just fiddle about or muck around or tinker. Yeah. I'm a very big tinkerer, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> I love tinkering. But tinkering yeah. isn't a practice. Tinkering yeah. is just fun. It's just yeah. mucking around. And you could come up with ideas from tinkering, absolutely, yeah. 100%. But yeah. to develop work, to develop artwork, to be and maintain creativity in your life you need to practice it and it is hard work oh absolutely it is yeah yep and i think i'm creative in my practice and what i do but you know in other other fields i'm really uncreative you know, <laughs> you know I'm, i sort of feel like i'm i'm hopeless at leisure time <laughs> i've got no creativity there you know it's all sort of so you know, oh, there's only God. there's only so much you have, <laughs> and and you do have to make make your work and your practice a big priority. Otherwise, it it doesn't uh, happen. You're right. So, yeah. are you the sort of person that never has any time off? You're just always working. Well, I'm. I'm one of your questions was, do you have any hobbies? And yeah. I, and really, really, my practice is my hobby. I think yeah, you know. Wow. It, yeah. So it kind of. You know, if I'm interested in something, that's where it'll go. Yeah. It'll get it'll channel down through the funnel of mm. into the workshop. So yeah. Hey, I've got a I've got another personal question for you. Yes. Um, that's fine so long as dies up for it. Hey. That's true. Yeah, that's true. And because we sort of do the same thing, then. And that helps a lot, you yeah. know, because 
you know, I, I can get obsessive about her practice as well as mine. Oh, really? Yeah, <laughs> and, cool. and, and, and and vice versa, you know. Like, I love the fact that we don't sort of, we're not sort of possessive about ideas. You know, if I no. see something that I think, oh, I can have, that'd be great for Di, then, and she can take it and run with it and I feel really good about it. Yeah. And she'll do the same with me. She'll, you know, how about you do that? And I'll go, Oh yeah, so so that that's really it's a, it's a great thing to have actually. So yeah, I know yeah. I don't I don't know if our relationship could work otherwise in a way. Yeah, it'd be um it'd be pretty hard actually. People make make these things work, but um it would be tricky. I think you know some people say that it's tricky. It must be tricky if you're working in the same field and there's this sort of competition between you, but I can honestly say I don't feel that with Di and I. It's just a sad thing, you know. Do you feel competitive with anyone else, though? Um, I'm sure. I mean, I'd like to say I didn't, but I'm sure I do. <laughs> um, not in terms of sort of a particular person, but, if mm. you know, I'm sure we've all had that feeling. You see really good work and you're inspired by it mm. and you think that you have a little pang because – it's not yours, yeah. <laughs> you know, and and that's that's a good thing. It, you know, it's kind of spur you on to do good work. But when I do see things that I really love, then I want to be inspired by them. But I, you do have a pang as well. So, yeah, you know, I wished I did that. And that's when you know, that's when you know you've really connected some, with something when you go, Jeez, I wish they'd done that. I can I tell you my personal philosophy of what constitutes good or bad art? Yes, please. Yeah. It's that feeling of being inspired. I think I think good art is when you look at something, doesn't matter what it is, music, craft, art, painting, whatever, and you think I really like it for a start and I reckon I can do it. And really great art is when you have that same feeling, I like it, I reckon I can do it, and I'm going to go home and I'm going to do it right now. I, <laughs> I have to do it. <laughs> that is great art. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's right. That's the transformative power of art, isn't it? To, to actually move you to do something, move you to an action, I think. You know? Oh, wow. And, and it's, when you do see something really great, the, you know, you, it actually does change the way you look at the rest of the world. You know, like, you know, you might, well, there's a, a painter here, Steve Lees, and he paints the Midlands of Tassie. And every time I drive through the Midlands of Tassie, I see it through Steve Lees's eyes, you know. It's yeah, like, right. <laughs> you know, it's changed, the literally changed the way that I look at something, you know. So that that's what art can do, I think. Yeah. Can we talk about stories for a little while? Yeah, absolutely. Do you sit down and write stories? Yes, I do. But it's usually, it's usually, I mean, well, occasionally I've, I've got a story and I'll make a cabinet around a story. But more likely is I've got a a general feeling and I'll start a cabinet and then the story will sort of happen at the same time as the cabinet. Mm. And quite often the cabinets are like multiple stories, so they're they're like these sort of um, 
these these kind of little receptacles for the stories. So, you know, and, and each draw might be considered like a chapter of a story or, a, a you know, a short story within a, a broader collection kind of thing. So, yeah. So, but, you know, and often people go, well, why don't you just write a book? And I go, well, that'd be easy, wouldn't it? <laughs> but, <laughs> but, it's, but in a way, it's the, it's the, it's the making the object that inspires the story. So you kind of need to do both things at the same time. Yeah, that's so interesting, isn't it? That the making of the object is inspiring the story. Yeah, because I mean, because it, it, you know, it, it's there's something being a designer maker or a, or an artist is a material process. You know, it, it is about ideas, but it's also about the physical interaction with material with the world and you know and I think that just that process in itself kind of opens up these doorways that stories can come out of yeah except that yours are uh, written down quite often yes in the work itself yeah as opposed to so they're, they're explicit stories as opposed to implied stories yeah 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 I mean sometimes yeah, I'm never sure whether that's uh, a weakness or a strength because, you know, sometimes you you don't want to tell the whole story. You just want to mm. to sort of – I think that the, the, the trick is to sort of allow an open space that can be taken somewhere in the mind of the, of the, the user or the viewer. And that's kind of a balance I always have to struggle with, don't – you know, am I saying too much here, or um, or or mm. am I being deliberately sort of opaque? You know, it's sort of striking the balance. I think is one of the hard things. I think, but yeah, it's it's an unusual thing to <laughs> write over your your furniture. But I sort of see it like the museum panel, like the you know you have the label that explains something mm. that gives a context to your idea, and in a way that's kind of how I see the, the written element of it to be this little explainer that isn't the thing but explains something about the thing somehow. Yeah. I think those little vignettes that you put on them, it blows them wide open actually. And they're quite often just a short paragraph, hey, so it's not... Yep. It, and also humorous. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they can be some can be pretty bleak as well so, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. maybe i haven't come across those yet no but yeah. mate, hmm. okay so what about instead of just humorous comedic which can have a little bit of tragedy in it can't it well that's right yeah i mean for example the, the probably the piece i'm best known for is the um it's called When My Heart Stops Beating, which is at Mona, and that's the set of drawers that's basically made out of records and they're, they're all cut up into pieces and exploded. And each one, the, the label of the record is sort of cut out and there's this sort of ghostly face sort of behind the label. Yeah. And then when you open the drawer, each one will have a... There's sort of like 54 drawers, but each one will have this voice saying, I love you, so you've got the got an, an audio component to it but then there's this kind of written story that is almost perhaps the history of this person that's just some trying to sum up this 
a tale of a, a person, a little instant of their life in one paragraph. So it's trying to engage all of the senses. You have the visuals of the material and, and what it looks like, and then you have the sound, but then you also have to go that extra step by reading and processing another layer of information. So I think it's that sort of multiple layering that I'm really interested in because that's what objects do. They sort of accrue these different meanings. They're, they're sort of... And, and that's what how museums present objects. They they sort of present a, something within a context that is no longer relevant or is relevant in a different way. It's It's kind of like the the big statues debate we're having now, it's kind of, it's history laid upon itself, which gives it this huge veneer of interest and drama and, and all the rest of it. Mm. The pieces you make invite the viewer right into them. Like not only yep. are they openable, you can interact with them physically, but there's the written element and the... Well, in that piece, there's audio as well and the visual yeah. aspect of it. And the visual aspect of it is quite three-dimensional. It's not just a two-dimensional. Mm. Yeah. One of the things you've used a fair bit in your work is objects were once treasured but now redundant, like the 78 LPs, Bone China, musical yeah. organs, linen-covered books, 35 mil slides. Is that a conscious thing or is it just like... Oh, yeah, it is a conscious thing. It's... um. I, it is that sort of sense of time moving on, you know, that 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 technologies are always different, you know, like remember having that the, the Mac classic in the, you know, and you would think how yeah. amazing this is. Yeah. And now, of course, you know, the, the thing in your pocket can do a <laughs> hundred times more than that, that used to be able to do. Mm. And it's the same with like this. Well, the 78 records is particularly poignant because it's, you know there's this voice tracked on this piece of shellac and yet, you know, it's hard to get a machine that actually plays that speed anymore. It's mm-hmm. kind of, it, it's, a, it's a voice that is lost to us. So that kind of opens up all these possibilities to what was this voice? What did it say? You know, who did it love? So, you know, it can, well, I mean, I, we all go through these periods of redundancy and, and relevance as makers, as artists, as people, you know, there's certain times in your life where you feel alive and, and of the moment. And there's other times where you feel like, oh, things have slipped by me. Things are going too far. So, yeah, it's nice to sort of just, just to have those little, little reminders that people were here before us and there'll be people here after us. Yeah, and that's a conscious thing. I can. I mean, it's um, it's the same with books. I mean, you you know, you go into a library and or the internet, you know, and there is it, it's kind of overwhelming how how many ideas are out there, how many people uh, want your attention and want to say something, and all of those things are relevant and all of those things are important. But you know, it, it's just it's just trying to sort of have that that little moment in time where something can go in, something can be important and meaningful to you. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've got a little story here. Can I read you something? Absolutely. Be right? <laughs> yeah, that would be beautiful. Yeah. Well, 
I, the, one of my latest series of work is this range called If They Should Accidentally Fall, and it's based on spirit bottles. So no. I did a piece for a dark mofo down here a couple of years ago, well, probably getting on to four years ago now, and it was a 1,000 spirit bottles, and each one had a face printed on the bottle, yeah. and it was sort of hung in this sort of small warehouse, and then we... And each one had an LED in it, and they're all sort of synchronised to sort of come on in these different patterns. So these faces would just sort of appear out of the dark. And then there was a sort of a skim of water on the floor. Mm. So you'd sort of see the faces above you and below you. But the whole thing about spirits and bottles and being, you know, humans being containers that, that hold things, hold hold their lives, hold their experience. So I was, I've been working on this this body of work that is is these kind of spirit people, I suppose. And I sort of set it up like a, this is a, a, a stemming from that work, which is called The Cloud. Then I did this work that's called If They Should Accidentally Fall. And it was, again, using the bottles. So the, the walls were kind of lined with these bottles that each had like a speaker hanging out of the bottle that was lit, so it was all dark. And then you could just hear the voices of just these little moments where people felt that they'd let themselves down or there was a, a fall or something wrong happened in their lives. Mm. So there was kind of this sort of sequence of 80 of those. And then in between them, there were these kind of like saints, I suppose. There was nine figures. I was going to do 12, like apostles, but I didn't, <laughs> I didn't get to 12. But there were these figures that um, that sort of exist in between those shelves of sort of hanging disappointment. Um, and each one is sort of, it kind of looks a little sort of churchy, almost like a secular sort of space. But this one that I just wanted to read you, um, it's called A Gutful of Longing, and I suppose it's sort of the pilgrim character. So he's mm. got this this spirit bottle with a face, but sort of pouring from the bottle, it's kind of like all these sort of electrical cables, like nerve endings. Mm. Um, and then the story that's kind of in his stomach, like he's carrying it around like a stone, is this. It's a bit long-winded, so no, hold on. Yeah. <laughs> okay, um, so it says, Once upon a time, washed up in a land full of stones, a thin man walked alone. He kicked at the rubble, at bits of shell, at broken bottles, at pieces of bone. He was a hollow vessel that leaked, a map of tangled thread. His plans all laid on and crumpled like an unmade bed. He was a rattling compass full of needles, directions and messages tattooed on invisible skin now all shed and blown to the wind. Some caught on barbs of rusting wire, they flap in surrender, all torn to shreds. Threadbare ambition worn thin, a gut full of longing, dreams made up by liars. The things once done, the things once had, all dragged along in a rotting string bag. The connections are faulty, the ends all frayed, the knots untied. He spilt those things in a land full of stones. But still he looks for that watch with the numbers that slipped and a face full of scratches and hands to touch. What a time we had. I miss you so much. So that's the kind of feel that, that they had, this sort of longing and and mm. that once you're, you know, once, you know, your life is just a sequence of experiences and you need to sort of 
some somehow hold on to them, and that's what I think objects can do. They can sort of just ground you in little instances. Yeah, grab a point in time and slow it down enough so you can stop and think about it. Exactly right, yeah, yeah. So, Patrick, uh, what you're writing there is poetry, isn't it, as well as just a little story? Yeah, I guess, I guess they are. It's, that's a bit like the artist term, I can't... <laughs> yeah, I know, it's so, I'm a poet. That's what you yeah. can... You <laughs> I'm can, not going to say that. You can yeah. go to a party no, next time, next time. <laughs> you go to a party or you go out to an opening, exhibition opening, you've got to say... Hey, what do you do? Are you part of this exhibition? Say, I'm I'm a poet. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, look, uh, can you answer that question, whether or not you'll write a book? I think I will. I think I will. But I don't know when. I don't know what it'll be about. It is one of those things that I think I will do. Yeah, yeah. Guy and I have a meeting. That's on the list. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to have to take two years away from money-making activities. Yes. And you'll have to have lots of free time to think. (laughs) That's right. And uh, a good supply of whatever poison you like. Yes, yes, I think so. I think so. I'd be distracted, though. I'd just... I'd just want to listen to the radio rather than write. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, yeah. I kind of, I kind of get why you wouldn't write a book. It's almost as if you are writing books anyway. It's, it's just another vehicle, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it, I can sort of see the, um, the, the idea of putting that out in in a form that lots of people can get at rather than have to stand in front of an object that... that, Yeah, you don't have any time. Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, I've went to school with Richard Flanagan, we're good Uh mates. Yeah, right, um, yeah. And um, he, yeah, he's got this thing that that he loves books because they're, you know, they don't diminish, you know, it doesn't matter that there's a million copies in the world, it's still a, a one-on-one experience. You, yeah. you know, you have the page in front of you. So I suppose it's a very similar thing to standing in front of just a one-off object. But I, I still think because there's only one of these objects in the world and you're in front of it, there is something special about that. Yeah, it's a very intimate experience, isn't it? I, mm. Yeah, I can, I can see... I'm trying. I, I am trying to really tease out we kind of like what it is that is different about your work and how you go about it, and I can I can see this intimacy that you're inviting people to take on board, and the ideas that go into that, and where it's coming from, the the ephemeral nature of it, and the the let's slow time down to a, at least for this period where you're in front of this work and you're you're contemplating it and yeah yeah i think yeah that's that's the essence of it i think i think it is about time and it yeah we can we can ignore time when we should think what a precious thing this is you know that we have only got so much of it and be Mm. nice to sort of treat it treat it properly you know get as much as we can out of it yeah, absolutely. As we get older, time gets 
so much more valuable. Oh, absolutely. Uh, it speeds up, doesn't it? Speeds up. It accelerates <laughs> maddeningly. Mm, yep. What are the new challenges coming up? Um, I was I was going to have a I was going well I've, I've done um, some work for um, the Melbourne Art Fair, which of course hey. has been cancelled. <laughs> so hey. that's a bit of a bummer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thanks, COVID. But yeah, um, yeah. So yeah, so that's that's on hold. But you know, the objects are still knocking around, so they'll see the light of day soon. I hope. Yeah, um, maybe next year or something. So yeah. Guy's got a show, so I'm work, helping her with that at the moment. Good so, on you. yeah, yeah. How has the COVID affected you apart from the Melbourne Art Fair, which might be really significant? Like, if you worked for a whole year towards that, yeah, well, it is. It, it was a bit of a shock. <laughs> you know, you sort of, it was supposed to be June this year. Yeah. So, uh, so, yeah, you kind of think, oh, well. Hopefully something will, you know, get some financial reward there and all of a sudden, ooh, <laughs> you know, you haven't lost the pieces or they're, they're not going anywhere, but that's the venue you'd chalked out and suddenly that's not there. It is a bit mm. of a shock. You know, having said that, no, it's nice to be locked down in a nice place that you like to be. Oh, yeah. Poor old towers in Melbourne, that'd be horrendous, wouldn't it? That'd be hell. Good mm. God. Yeah. Oh, anyway, so challenges you yeah. had. Melbourne Art Fair, Di's got a show. Where's her yep. show? Let's promote that. Yes. Um, she's going to be uh, on a Handmark Gallery, which is in Salamanca in Hobart. Yep. yep. And that'll be September, early September. She's doing some fantastic things for that. It's called, um, <laughs> it's going to be a show called in total disarray. Oh, That's okay. Just, yeah. So, uh, so it's it's Sort of collagey things, so um, yeah. yeah, things cut up and reassembled and made different. Yeah, no, I've, it's going to be great. I reckon in total disarray is is a motto for twenty twenty. Like, yeah, that's right. Years, yeah. Just a year of disarray. Yeah, no, it'll be excellent. It's looking great. Yeah, deserves a podcast, I would say. I <laughs> there's an open invitation for Di. I really, really want to have a chat to her. But bizarrely, I have invited many, many women onto the show and I they just are too busy or they're too nervous or maybe a bit of yeah, both. Too I'm modest, yeah. Too maybe too modest. I don't know, mm. but I'd really like to get a broader base of people and I'd really like to get like Aboriginal voices and yeah, African yeah. weavers and Batik painters from Indonesia and all sorts of other stuff that yeah, you know, yeah. to find out how people really tick and yeah. like make it much broader and with greater depth. That's that's my aim anyway. Oh, it's such a hard thing to articulate though, you know, like, you know, you've done a great set of questions, but sort of coming up with coherent answers to those questions is oh, really mate. hard. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what though? That's a really interesting point. I think that a coherent answer isn't required. No, true. Yeah. <laughs> and especially in the long-form interview, like if you're in a short-term, like a 15-second soundbite sort of thing, you've got to say the message and you've got to get it bang yeah. on and that's it. But over this hour and a half or whatever we're going to talk or two hours or whatever, like there's a sense of who you are that will come across with, without you even trying. You could, you could talk shit 
and your humanity would still come out and what makes you tick still comes out. So you don't have to answer completely articulately everything or know it to bits. That's not required in this format. And it's a really interesting format. It's kind of like a book. Yeah, yeah. And it's sort of, I mean, it's that to and froing that makes it interesting, I guess, you know, like not being conclusive. (laughs) Sort of maddening but interesting, I think. Maddening for the interviewee, I can understand. (laughs) Not, not, however, for me, and I'm pretty sure not for the listener. I've got really great feedback. Like the feedback I get is insanely good. And oh, that's good. Yeah, look, it is. And it's not. this show's not about me. It's about yeah. people who make design, art, create music, furniture. Yeah. You know, I know lots of woodworkers, so there's lots of woodworkers. But I hope, you know, that'll sort of, no, no, you no. know, the percentages will drop and everyone will come up. And it's a collective answer as well. Do you see yeah. what I mean? Like, we, we're talking at things, there's so many different ways of doing stuff and so many correct ways or right ways. There's no wrong way. And yep. it is complex and difficult. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It, it really is. Yeah. And why do it? You know, <laughs> why do you do yeah. it? Uh, yes, I know. It's, uh, it's not an easy path, is it? Uh, no. Nah. <laughs> yeah. It's very marginal. It's a really, I think it's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's a good, um, it's a great topic to have a podcast on, actually. I don't think I've really heard, heard of it being discussed we, like this, really. Yeah. I hadn't either. And that's why, I, uh, no, that's not actually true. I hadn't within an Australian craft or art context. I had in music, a lot of this is modelled after a particular music podcast, which I'm a big fan of. Oh, okay. Yeah. I thought there needed to be something. Is that one American? It is. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. It's called Everyone Loves Guitar. Oh, okay. And it's by a guy called Craig Garber and he's – He's a marketing dude who happens to just really like guitar and yeah. lots of these questions are kind of modelled on his style. Right. Although I'm not him and I never will be, so I don't try, <laughs> I don't try and channel him or anything. But it's just the, it's just the way, like the getting into the, the background of an individual and talking about the process and and getting into this idea of what makes a person tick, what makes a creative person tick. Mm. Yeah, I reckon it's pretty interesting. Yeah, good one. Look, good time to wrap it up. How can people get in touch with you and see your work if they're allowed? Yeah. <laughs> um, wow. We've got a website, which is com. So that's um, – Covers Di and me, so that that's yep. interesting. Um, it is. You could go to um, the the gallery that I deal with is um, is Despard Gallery, so they've got a website, and that's sometimes got some of mine on there. And look out for the Melbourne Art Fair. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully February this 
next year. So, yeah, okay. Yeah. Bloody good. So, yeah. Oh, good on you, Adrian. It's been lovely to chat. Oh, look, likewise, Patrick. Thank you so much for your time. Really, That's really appreciate right. it, mate. No worries. Well, good luck with everything that's going on. Yeah, you too. We'll speak soon, I hope. Okay. See you, mate. Bye. See ya. Bye-bye.